Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is Joshua Kahn with the news. The super flu epidemic has come to Dairy and holds us in its phlegmy grasp. As the station's designated safety cadet, I was able to quarantine our studio to protect the health of everyone at risk. I have isolated the sick and dying from the healthy station populace, and I will be doing everything in my power to keep us on the air. I only hope there are still living people out there to hear it. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And Benjamin Graham. <coughs> oh, I'm so sorry. <coughs> ben, are you okay? You okay, Ben? Yeah, I've been ben, feeling okay? under the weather lately. I don't know what it is. <laughs> okay. um, anyway, cool. Uh, what's up, Constant Readers? How's it going? <laughs> uh, on this episode, we are going to be covering part two of The Stand. We are going to be covering chapters 27 to 44, and we have CM leading our discussion. CM, take it away. Thanks, Josh. Before we dive in, quick recap of where we are in the book so far. Last episode, not much happened. Millions of people died and we met most of our main characters. (laughs) Yep. Good summary. (laughs) So obviously a lot happened. This book takes off right from the first chapter. We meet our main characters. They watch people they love and care about die while they seem unaffected. The general population is starting to figure out what's going on. There's mayhem, chaos, and there's nothing anyone can really do about it. And of course, we met the walking man. So we kick off part two, back with our nice guy, Larry Underwood, and he's sitting on a bench in Central Park. His mom is dead, most of New York is dead, and he's reflecting on some choices that he's made in his life. Ben, you mentioned last episode you liked Larry, and I was like, oh, I hate Larry. I'm starting to come around. I think I was confusing him with Harold. Ah, it's who been a we long will time. Meet yeah. later. Uh, that's interesting you should say that. I had the exact opposite reaction. <laughs> it's been a while since I've read this book. This is the fourth time I think I mentioned I've read this book. And um, okay, I know his arc brings him around, makes him a really good guy. That, that doesn't happen yet. <laughs> but this chapter isn't really about that. This chapter is just uh, about the world being over the the chaos that has been left like new york there's so many people so there's more than just like one survivor in this town there's the guy they call the monster shouter who just is exactly as his name implies shouting about monsters (laughs) there's the guy he met that decided he's going to break into yankee stadium run the bases naked and jerk off on home plate because dreams come true living his best (laughs) life (laughs) and then there's uh there's an old woman on a bench right so that did you call her an old lady yeah Okay, so this is she thing, not? Is well, she's this is interesting. What in her fifties or sixties? I, I think so. She's older. Yes, but it, it's interesting that you say that because her. So her name is Rita Blakemore. Um, Larry meets her. I I had two thoughts about this whole relationship, and I'm curious what you guys thought. So my first was that Larry is drawn to Rita because he perceives a kind of like take charge maternal motherly strength in her essentially someone that Mm. he can use and the second is that she is there on that park bench to die i I did have that feeling because he meets her he she's just in the middle of the city which is literally post-apocalyptic it's empty uh, fifth avenue burned down it's just a mess and she's sitting on a bench And he talks with her, and when she opens up her purse, it's full of pills and a gun. Mm -hmm. And I was like, "Oh, she she was she's gonna kill herself." And she said, "When you when I heard you approaching, I almost hid." But then she didn't. Sort of like, well, if it's crazy Mm -hmm. person, maybe that's it. (laughs) And on your first point, yes, their relationship is crazy edible. Like it's (laughs) kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. And he sees her first as this, going back to what you said, Josh, as this strong character, this kind of beautiful, well put together woman. And then a few chapters later, which we'll get to, it's like, oh, I realized Rita's old (laughs) and annoying. (laughs) I forgot she was old. Yeah. Well, he specifically says like he, it's not like he is confused that she's old. It says that she's trying to look like she's trying to look younger and not so wealthy. 
But there's like this strength in her that he initially sees that. And I think maybe it was just her trying desperately to hold on to that. And then yeah. well, she's she got a sassy can't maintain spirit. that. Yeah. Yeah. Rita's a, a really fascinating character. Yeah. She has so many layers that uh, just really, really tragically get whittled down mm-hmm. throughout uh, throughout this part of the book. So moving on. <laughs> I'm kidding. Actually, we will come back to Rita to talk about her more but for now we are checking in on franny both of her parents are dead her mom in the hospital (laughs) it's a terrible point to laugh but i did just look down at my notes and see that i called her frankie so (laughs) (laughs) i like that name much better (laughs) so her dad is dead as well and he is upstairs in his bed She's eating strawberry pie, she's making french fries, and she almost burns down her house. She's got pregnancy brain and grief brain at the same time. Well, I can't blame her. She did watch that terrifying newscast from last episode. Yeah, the that she thought was a game show. <laughs> yeah, she talks about that she was she's been in such a a fog that she sat down and watched a bunch of guys executing people on live TV and was like, huh, that's weird. She thought it was a running man. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) She comes to this realization that, okay, I'm burning down my house and I cannot leave my rotting father upstairs. It's summer. I'm going to have to bury him. I think she picks a really awesome spot to do it in the Mm -hmm. garden where we first meet him. And she is outside working her butt off, digging the grave. And here comes Harold Lauder. Harold, who is the only person left alive in this town besides her. Uh, her oh. old best friend's little brother. And he is 16? 16? Yes. Something like that. Yeah. And gross. This irritated me because he's uh, he's eye-raping her and she's uncomfortable and she considers changing because she's just in her backyard shoveling, wearing whatever. Right. But then she thinks, oh, no, I can't change because... He'll know why, and that'll make him feel bad. No, it's okay for him to feel shame in that moment. Maybe that would make him grow as a person a little bit. Okay, I have a confession. First and foremost, Harold sucks, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) But when I first read this book, I was a 13-year-old boy with very few friends, a weight problem, and I was angry all the time. The first time I read this book, I got Harold Lauder. Mm-hmm. And reading it now, oof. I, <laughs> it's not a good feeling. Because even now, I'm like, oh, God. Yeah. I He's he's this super unpopular guy. He's, like Josh said, gross. He just has no hygiene. She says he's, like, oily and uh, just and really smart. And he leers. And and he's he, smart in a way that does not help him. Oh, yeah. He, he talks like an asshole. Yeah. He is uh, just a typical, he's the prototypical neckbeard. Yeah. Like, <laughs> there's an alternate world where that's just me, guys. And I, feel, oh, ben. I know, oh, I'm not happy ben. about it. Is Harold your Annie? Your, oh, your shit. Bitches? Oh, no. It's oh, happened. no, guys. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yes, it is. Because he's a fucking pile of garbage. But as a character, I kind of love him because he's so easy to hate. And as we get to know him throughout the book, he does, he changes in several ways, but doesn't change in a lot of other ways. I, I'm not happy about this, but <laughs> in the in, full interest of full disclosure, I had to tell you. I'm so happy you did. But that's, I mean, that also is a credit to King writing real characters. Like, even though I was not a Harold Lauder, I had an envisioning of somebody that I knew growing up that I was like, yeah, yeah. because you used to know me. <laughs> And you're like, whoa, how do I know that? Why is this guy so familiar? But just like the, especially like it's the immaturity. The immaturity is, Mm -hmm. is the one thing that informs all of the things that we hate about Harold all stem from the fact that he is a 16 year old who is no guidance. And Mm -hmm. it all springs from that. 
See, now I, I can't read the note that I wrote about Harold. Oh, please, please do. Please do. Please it. do. It's poor dumb penis can't help it. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> that is the most succinct, the most succinct uh, summing up of that entire personality type. <laughs> And I love it. That's hysterical. <laughs> I just want to touch on one more thing in this chapter. And we might not hit on all of these, but throughout, the characters are all having nightmares. And I think mm. we talked a little bit about that. But Franny's nightmare was rough. Mm, yeah. It's all of the nightmares with the the dark man, the walking dude, are all pretty fucking scary. But hers is so... So much more personal somehow yes. than the others, I feel like, so far at least. Her nightmare is her dad is laying under a sheet on the kitchen table, and she's approaching the sheet, and then she knows that it's not her dad, but she can't help but pull it back, and it's the dark man. And she just feels this wave of like dread and cold come over her, and he has something for her, and it's a twisted coat hanger. Well, something for her baby, I guess. Yeah. So disturbing. We check in on Stu for a lighter note. and he's <laughs> <laughs> Yep. This is where the book really lightens up is yeah. when we get to Stu's chapter. He's waiting for a man named Elder, a man he's sure has been given his final order. He's going to he's coming to kill him. I loved this moment so much because Stu knows this man's going to come in. He's going to kill me. This is what's mm. going to happen. Stu uh, uh, Elder walks in and he's you, he's visibly sick and he's very casually being like, you know what? Well, I, I finally got my orders on what to do with you. And he's like talking around it. And Stu's plan is to go, look at that goddamn rat behind you. <laughs> and when Elder turns, there's a moment where he's like, oh, fuck, that actually worked. And grabs a chair and bashes him with a chair. And it's glorious. And this guy has that... Um bad guy like horror movie you know jason michael myers moment where he comes back mm, like the you shard think of he's plastic dead. through his eye oh yeah and so Stu, cool. Stu, like here's something behind him and you think that it's going to be sort of a hallucination or just he's so stressed out that he thinks it's him and he turns around and nothing's there no it's him elder <laughs> got back up he's coming after him and uh Stu grabs the gun that had fallen out of elder's baggie his gun baggie <laughs> And grabs a gun and shoots him in the goddamn chest, which I thought was interesting that uh, our, our our ultimate good guy, our uh, arguably main character, is the first person in the book about good versus evil with a body count. Ooh, that is interesting. Yeah. Uh, granted, it was completely self-defense. And yeah, uh, <laughs> but I just thought that was interesting. Well, and there's that moment right afterwards where he's like, I sure hope he was going to kill me and not let me out. <laughs> and then he walks outside and he sees all of Stu's files and clothes and everything. And he's like, these were about to get burned with my body. We're good. They weren't going to let or, me out. Or returned to him <laughs> uh, after he signed some paperwork. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Do you guys want to talk about him just getting out of that facility? Because there's some creepy moments in there before he finally gets out the doors. And, and it returns later on in mm -hmm. uh, these in the dream. recurring nightmares that he has. The The sequence of him just sprint, uh, trying not to sprint mm -hmm. through this empty hospital and seeing doors open with just bodies piled in them is so stressful. It's almost like a nightmare in and of itself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the worst part is when he finally finds the door. He finally finds an exit after, like, being on the edge of a panic attack. He finds this exit door and stands there. And just as he's about to open it, the stairwell that he's standing next to, a hand reaches out and grabs his ankle. It basically says, like, hey, come on down here. Yeah. And it's such a Pennywise moment yeah. that I was like, ah, is this supernatural <laughs> or not? No, it's just a guy because he stomps on his hand and he falls down some <laughs> stairs. But it, it really freaked me out. 
We get a brief visit, a return to our net, which kind of took me back to Salem, Salem's Lot a little yes. bit. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, this town is also a character. And it's just like a paragraph telling us, yeah, our net, where we started off, it is now a ghost town. It's, it's empty and gone. Half burned down. Then we meet a new character, although he's not going to be around for very <laughs> long. Christopher Bradenton. Kit. Kit dies a rough death. This chapter is weird. It is weird. I I wish that I could just read the whole chapter on her podcast. That would yes. be ridiculous. But it's like I, I was trying to figure out how do you sum up? It's so bizarre. Like it, he, I, I don't even know how to describe how he's acting. What it is, is he, Christopher Bradenton is dying. He is just like all of these characters we've seen from the outside dying of Captain Trips. And he's in bed and he's delirious with fever. And the way King writes it is we, we've seen these characters uh, ranting and and uh, kind of losing their mind and their space and time of where they are and when they are. But we've never felt like we were losing ours but with we've, them. <laughs> exactly. We've never felt, uh, we've, we've never seen it from inside that. And that's what he writes. Mm-hmm. And it's awesome. It's such an, uh, a fascinating bit of writing because it doesn't flow together. Oh, it's not at just all. a, a freewheeling uh, madness that uh, is really hard to follow. Well, especially when his brain is trying to focus on, I hear someone in my house and he like talks about hearing footsteps downstairs and then his brain goes off about when he was in Chicago for another couple of lines and then he hears a sound and it brings him back to where he is now and it's like he's trying to hold on to where he is but his brain is so far gone, there's no hope. Basically, Flag was using him to get a car and papers and everything. So he, the, we have this exchange where he is trying to pull this information out of this guy who is dying and doing it in a very cruel way. Like he holds his nose shut so he can't breathe. He sits on his chest. But the whole time he's doing these things, it reminds me of Sam Raimi, that sort of um, Three Stooges horror, <laughs> the way that he acts in this chapter. So like a, this was an evil dead scene from Evil Dead to you? A little bit. Yeah, yeah. I can see that. Uh, oh, it's it was so much more menacing. That, I mean, he has that, that he's always described as like very jovial mm-hmm. and he has the big s- grin. He's the grinning man or whatever. But it was still fucking terrifying. And see, this whole thing felt very uh, Joker-ish to mm-hmm. me. Like that's, yes. that's the attitude. Like because he throws like a bucket of cold water on him and watches him convulse, which is like making him even more sick. And he's just like, uh. Then he goes to pick up his car. He walks to the gas station. Uh, Okay, maybe you guys can help me out with this. He's walking around and he turns and this guy has died, Kit. And Kit is standing there and he steps on something and it punctures his foot, but there's no blood. So it's like telling us, yeah, he is dead, but he's there because he is a a minion. I don't know. I don't like the word minion, but Mm. part of flag. And uh, he snaps his fingers and he disappears so where did he go is he really dead now did he put him somewhere for later use like that was my question too because he also says that he finds there's jewels on the ground and he snaps and they disappear he doesn't find jewels he kicks over a tire and there are jewels under them like he's in a beat-em-up video (laughs) (laughs) like he could have kicked over a box and found a whole turkey that he yes. used to regain his health. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just, I think it's just a manifestation of it, his weird chaos magic. Yeah. Like he's he's getting his magic and just things are happening and he's like, oh yeah, yeah He's no, like, I don't need to worry about this. We are back with Lloyd, who is trapped in his prison cell and was somehow smart enough to save some food, but not enough food. And he's starving and he's kind of looking at his cellmate's leg a cellmate's dead like that's gonna happen later oh we skipped over lloyd so much last episode because he's a dink and like his one chapter last episode was really annoying i like to think that he 
like we kind of pan out and we realize, you know, he's to this point. He's like, I might have to eat my cellmate. And it's been like a day and a half. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I I love these chapters. These are some of the like most unnerving chapters. To oh, me. for sure. Because it never says in this chapter. He looks at his cellmate's leg. Right. It never it never is comes out and says he starts to think about cannibalism. It also never says that he but takes a it, bite. Exactly. <laughs> it, well, exactly. That's such a cool where it's such a terrible thing. It is such an unbelievably monstrous thing that even he can't think about what he's done. And that comes up later, but let's just talk about it now because yeah. we're just with Randall Flagg and we're with Larry. Let's just hit it. Yeah, definitely. But, yeah. Uh, throughout these two chapters, he's... Uh, first stuck in his cell, and it's been day a, and a half. A day, yeah, <laughs> a few days, and he has his his food supply is waning, and he has been trying to get the cot leg off of his bed so much that his fingers are bloody. Yeah, it's gross. <laughs> Which is funny because he gets it off, and then he's like, "What? Why did I do this?" Because <laughs> he's still kind of a dink. Uh, but they, he kills a rat. And then puts it under his bunk, and he's mm-hmm. like, "I'm not gonna." He he separates it from his food stash. It's not yeah. in yeah. his food stash. Well, and and just real briefly, what was interesting about him taking the thing off and his, his fingers are bleeding, he was sort of remin not reminiscing, reliving this experience he had as a mm-hmm. kid where he had a pet rabbit and forgot that he had a pet rabbit, and then he remembered like a week later, and that rabbit had like not its own pause. The the parallels between him and the rabbit are mm-hmm. uh are really upsetting. Lloyd is an asshole who refuses to take responsibility for his actions. Mm-hmm. Yes, he plain keeps and saying, simple. Like it's Poke's fault I'm in here. Yeah. Yeah. He killed those people except for the ones that I killed. Yeah, but I wouldn't <laughs> have killed those people if Poke hadn't been with me. It's his influence. Uh but in the his second chapter since we're lumping them both together, it's a week later, he's almost out of food, and he's. It, it just says that his his cell, the guy in the cell across from him, is dragged up against the cell, and there are bite marks. And he's like, "Huh." Yeah, he, he never. <laughs> well, because I think he was relieved that he never had to take a bite. <laughs> yeah, but then it tells us the reader, the book tells us that there are bite marks. Yeah, but uh, he he's on the edge of insanity and he's ranting about the key the people that make the keys the keepers of the keys they're the good people the people that follow the law and it's their fault and just as he's about to lose his mind he hears uh he hears a voice the the note that i made cuz i'm a dummy was like there's a voice in the jail there's someone there and then when it then my next note is it's flag Fucking of course it's flag. <laughs> Who else would it be? I thought it was cool though that his instinct was right, which was mm-hmm. to not respond to that voice. But he had no choice because it's respond to that voice or starve to death. But yeah, it, that is like even as far gone and close to starving he is that he is so terrified of flag. But he does call out and flag comes to him and hands him a stone that is also a key that I thought was super cool. Just this, this black stone with a red flaw and he's just twirling it in his fingers. And as he's twirling it, it becomes a key. Then it goes back to the stone, then back to the key, uh, a flaw that looks like a uh, red or possibly crimson eye. Oh, uh, I wonder what that could be related to. <laughs> uh, but he essentially says, I will let you out. Lloyd. We'll go get a big, we'll go get a big lunch. But first, you have to kneel to me, and you will be the first. And so Lloyd becomes the first, uh, and Flag's right-hand man. His number one. I know this gear. This book gears up towards a battle between good and evil. Like, that's pretty mm. much from the get-go. That's where we're going. And I just kind of assumed Lloyd was going to be another cog in the machine. Uh, he's He's a piece on the board for the bad guys, and that was it. And then here, when he's like, he's he's making him his right-hand man and he has chosen him, my first thought was, well, that 
is an interesting choice. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because he is so easily corrupted. Yeah, mm-hmm. that may, he's just easily manipulated. You, mm-hmm. He has no fear of controlling him. All right, so we catch up with Nick just as the power in the jailhouse finally goes out. And this scene is great. And by great, I mean terrible and terrifying because it reminds you of not only how hard it would be to just be yourself and be in the situation where it's just you and you're alone, but to not be able to hear and not be able to speak, that would be horrible. So it's horrible for him because little does he know Ray Bauer or Ray Ray Booth. Ray Booth has been keeping his eye on things and he sees his moment and he comes in to attack Nick. And I definitely wanted to scream, look behind you at the book. (laughs) Yeah, he couldn't have heard he couldn't have heard you. No. For two reasons. (laughs) What's the other one? He's he's deaf and fictional. (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) Anyway. I I love this moment because he he attacks him from behind and Nick's first thought is it's a monster. (laughs) <laughs> because of uh, just how unrealistic everything has He's been. He's not wrong. No, that's very <laughs> also true. true. Uh, the, and the fight is like really intense because like Ray is his, he's got the, the tube neck and he's on death's door as it is. Nick accidentally shoots a bullet, uh, not into his leg, but he grazes down his whole thigh because he's trying Ugh. to pull his gun out. Ray does something that made me sick to my stomach and I did not think was going to happen. He tries to gouge out Nick's eyes. Smartest move anyone in a book has ever made. Uh, Always go for the eyes. Someone's attacking you. (laughs) Just stick your thumbs in their eyeballs. They'll stop. Oh, yeah. I assume I've never done that. (laughs) (laughs) I was I, I was so afraid that that scene was going to end with his eyes popping. Oh, like I I genuinely thought fuck that this was he was going to be. Deaf, mute, and blind. And later he thinks, but if I'm that was right. the case, <laughs> I would not. No, I would not choose to live through that. No, no I, I know. No way. In an empty world where you know that any that there could be someone to attack you at any time. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, fuck no. But luckily, he's only half blind because now he's got one dead eye. Oh, God, poor Nick. Nick does not deserve seriously any of this shit. Okay. So now we're back with Lloyd again. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. It's the trash can man. <laughs> so <laughs> get these confused. <laughs> yeah, let, Ben, you, you mentioned uh, you like this guy. So take it away. I love the trash can man. He is one of my favorite king villains of all time. He's almost not a villain. He's. You uh, don't get two. You can't have Harold <laughs> and trash can. Uh, <laughs> He's a homeless man. A homeless pyromaniac? Yes, who is extremely mentally disturbed, uh, has had this horrible, tragic background, but he also loves to burn things. Uh, He's called the Trash Can Man because as a kid, he would set trash cans on fire and uh, burn up Miss Semple's pension check. And uh, he hears voices and he's wandering around his hometown which is empty, and he keeps looking out into the distance and seeing the local oil refinery and having this itch in the back of his head saying, I bet that would look really cool if it were on fire. So he makes it on fire. Yeah, it does. <laughs> I think that was the perfect summary. Oh, it's so good. And the way it's written where it's like bouncing back and forth and he loses time and he's like, mm-hmm. oh, nope, I'm going to be a good guy. I'm not going to burn that down. And then there's a paragraph break and he's like, so he's halfway there. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> and then after he he blows up this entire oil refinery and it's this hell storm and he looks off into the distance and goes, Chicago's that way. I bet there's a lot of places that would look pretty cool if it if they were on fire <laughs> right now. And he wanders off. It's all we get in this part of the book. I just the the trash can man is fascinating to me. I'm very excited to get more. Yo, that, after finishing this chapter, I was sad that we didn't have another chapter about the trash can man in our reading yet. I'm so excited because it's such a it's such a a chaotic character because he doesn't there's no like malicious intention 
No, really. he's a wild card. Yeah, he just he's just going for it. He's this song is about good versus evil and also the trash can man. <laughs> And I love it. And see how you look baffled. I can barely tolerate this section. <laughs> really? I don't know what it is about him. I don't like him. I don't want to read about him. <laughs> that's I maybe mean, it's because I don't like chaos. His, no, no, maybe. Oh, that's yeah. fair. I love chaos, so this is right up my alley. <laughs> All right, let's go back to Rita and Larry because Larry is struggling to be a nice guy. And I imagine that he is his failing is pretty obvious even to Rita, which I think mm-hmm. we find is taking quite a toll on her physically, mentally, and just their relationship as a whole. Because they're still they're in her apartment and he's like barely tolerating her moment to moment, but trying so hard to tolerate her. And you know, you know when people are like that, like you can still tell, you know when someone hates you oh yeah <laughs> no this is the part where i was like oh was i wrong about larry because he is this part's rough. such an asshole because rita's losing it Re- the whole city smells like death all of the people in there the millions of people rotting in these hot new york tenements and yeah. like it sounds not great and yeah. they found <laughs> they found the the monster shouter murdered uh stabbed to death hundreds of times and she's just her her grasp is slipping and larry's not fucking having it no and he's i feel really bad about the note i made now because i i i I guess i didn't penis sad can't help it (laughs) (laughs) kind of (laughs) the note that i made is wow rita's super attached to him now that they're lovers in the nighttime (laughs) jeez man <laughs> you really have a way with words sometimes, Josh. <laughs> Not that the lovers in the nighttime. The lovers in the nighttime because they spent like Larry in, and Rita. The lovers, <laughs> lovers <laughs> in the nighttimes. <laughs> you fucking creep! What the hell? <laughs> well, like my brain pieces this together as like they. Well, last time we met them, they were just going to have lunch, mm-hmm. and then now he's at her apartment. So my brain just was like, oh. Now they had lunch, went back and had sex, and now he is her husband. Because some of the some of the reactions, I wasn't reading them. Because also, as she's like these first few reactions we get of her, her attachment to him and her like kind of like being all up in his business is before we find out it smells like super death out, mm. and we they saw a dead body stabbed to death the other day, and she like reacts. The way she reacts to him translated to me like she is treating him like she would have treated her husband on every day to day. Like in her brain, he is just that that place now. She seems like a woman who has never been treated respectfully by a man. Yes. And every move she makes is in reference to how he is going to respond. Like, am I Mm. going to upset him? Is he going to yell at me? Right. And it's really sad in Mm -hmm. his... And we're seeing her do this through his eyes, which makes it even sadder because he can't stand her now. You know, when we first met her, also through Larry's eyes, she was this older but vibrant, strong woman, this mother figure. And now she is weak and useless to him. And he's, you can tell he's like, no, not consciously, but like his mom said, you use people. Mm -hmm. He decides to uh, use this as an excuse to treat her the way uh, as though he were an abusive boyfriend because they decide to leave town. They, they decide to get out of the city and they, they pack up a bunch of stuff and they start going and they decide to take the Lincoln tunnel for some stupid fucking <laughs> nightmare city. Of all <laughs> the ways to get out of the city city. Let's go through a long ass pitch black They did it tunnel. for me because I loved the scene. It so cool. <laughs> it's a great bit. But they, they get packed and they start walking and they've walked, what, uh, several blocks. Mm-hmm. And he turns and looks and she he notices she's wearing sandals and her feet are bleeding and she's in pain. And he fucking screams at her 
Like, how uh, how could you be so fucking stupid? How could you not come prepared? She's a rich lady. She never walked four blocks yeah. in her life. <laughs> and it's such a shitty thing, and he's such an asshole. And he, like, he realizes in the moment, oh, I'm being a huge asshole. But that's not an excuse. But the worst part is, she is like, fine, go on. Fuck off, I'm not going with you anymore. And he storms off, and he gets to the tunnel, and it's pitch black and all the lights are off. And he goes, oh, I didn't bring a flashlight. <laughs> you fucking hypocrite. Yeah. Yep. Oh, it made me so mad. Ah, that's a, almost almost word for word. The note that I had down when he mentions his flashlight. Yeah. Like, you want to harp on her for not wearing the right shoes. You're an idiot, too. Yeah. I. This part was rough. Yeah. So he is in the tunnel and there are cars and people and everyone's dead and he can't see and he's making his way through and he's comes to a point where he has to walk on top of dead bodies and he gets really spooked and he hears something and he starts firing it's rita <laughs> spoiler alert she, yeah, holy shit it's she, the person you, you know, were she with. changes her mind and she because he's like she's clinging to life which is him mm-hmm. yeah so she they they end up getting back together and they leave New York. And we're going to come back to them, sadly. But for right now, check in on Franny. She's taking care of Gus, who is the guy who operates the pier. He dies. And I guess now she decides that Harold is probably the last man on Earth, so she can talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, It's it's been several days at this point, yeah. right? And she says that like, he was respectful, at least, because when he came over while she was burying her dad, she was like, hey leave me the hell alone and he did yeah uh but he's been driving around kind of like you know just checking on her but not bothering her which mm-hmm. is fine so yeah they they decide to leave they're going to make their way to the research lab not knowing what Stu knows obviously uh but not before he paints harold loves franny on the side of a barn so people can find them <laughs> <laughs> that's only half true uh, yeah uh, well, she, he he gets the idea to paint their directions up on the roof of this barn. Uh, hey, we're alive, and we're going to this this plague center. What what did you think, Josh, when the, the Harold's idea is there's this plague center in, in Stovington, a place that we have been yeah. in this book? What, what did you expect out of this? Well, that was that was uh, that moment where I was like, when he brought up that place. Another instance, like I started to like Harold a little bit. I was like, good, good on you for for like being proactive and piecing together. Yeah, I guess this would be the place to go to. But I was like, that's not gonna end well because I know what's there. Yeah, but I like I couldn't fault it. I was like, that's a damn good plan instead of staying in this fucking town. And then like the lengths he goes to to. That giant message, the whole route, the and then signs both of their full names, and he had to like hang out the window to paint her name on it. And that was an act of love. That's why yeah. I phrased that yes, that way. Yeah. Well, I thought you were talking about later. We find out yeah. he did carve uh, a little heart with their initials in it on the. Because I guess we have to remember he is a sixteen-year-old boy. Yes, uh, very we can make true. some allowances. But I like the moment that he's like, she's like, "Why did you risk doing that?" To just for my name, like why? And he was like, "Cause we're in this together." And that was like such an honest response of like, "Cause we're a team now." Mm-hmm. I'm like, "Yeah, all right, good on you, man." His dream has just come true. Yeah. <laughs> okay, this chapter, this next one coming up, it's chapter thirty-seven. My favorite so far of the book. Stu, we're back with Stu, and he meets a dog, Kojak, <laughs> and then he meets the man with the dog, who is not the dog's owner, Glenn Bateman, and they have beers and sandwiches and they become friends right away and it's like they are in a different book for this chapter and it's amazing and i just want okay we need to talk about uh glenn's hypothesis on now what is going to likely happen you know as society rebuilds itself and you get these pockets of communities with different people who have different skills and different resources because i was just eating this chapter up. Yes. Uh, first of all, I com- I could not agree more that this feels like a different book. I love the idea of a post-apocalyptic book that is this idyllic and relaxing. 
Yes. It is so, that's one thing throughout this book, everyone, almost the first thing they do when they decide to travel is we got to get guns. But then no one cares about them or uses them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because when, when uh, Stu, who has a gun on him, uh, hears or and sees uh, Glenn, he's just like, oh, hey. And Glenn's like, oh, hope you're not going to use that gun. He's like, nah, that's it. It's so much more optimistic than any other, like all the grim, dark, walking dead bullshit where everyone's holding guns on. They're just like, oh, another person. I haven't seen one of them in a while. Let's talk about Glenn's theory. His society A versus society uh, B. Glenn's sociology lecture. I love Glenn and I can tell exactly why. We've already met him. In another book with a different name. Okay. In the dark half. He's the professor. He is, I can't remember anyone's names ever. Professor Trelawney. help me. (laughs) Yes, Professor Trelawney (laughs) from the dark half. His professor friend who's just like kooky and really smart, but in a really laid back way. Just the kind of community college professor you just want to hang out in their office is that just me? Is it, <laughs> am I the only one that had that experience? No, I had that. Yeah, that's, I agree with that. Yeah. But that's funny because there's also, like, this is kind of the third time that this book has reminded me of the dark half. What where, were the other two times? Yeah. Uh, well, I guess it's kind of uh, a, a loose one, but it's, uh, the first one is the the eye gouging, like the eye imagery. Anytime uh, I think yes. eye imagery, I always think the dark half. True. And the other time is, um, I believe it's Stu. It's somebody's dream mm-hmm. about the Dark Man, and he the, he never sees the Dark Man, but he feels the Dark Man behind him, and he knows that if mm-hmm. he were to turn, the mm-hmm. Dark Man would be there, but he doesn't want to turn. And that was Thad's dream with with uh, George Stark. I can feel that. So there's this part I loved. I don't know why this stuck out to me. It's the most memorable line in the book that I won't be able to remember. But <laughs> they're having this conversation about how you know you have you'll have this community here and this nearby community and one is in a better location and they have mm. a guy who knows how to work things and he can get the power back on so this other community's like hey send us your guy and he's like well what do you do and Stu's like you send him and he's like no you don't send him what if they kidnap him what if they keep him he's useful he's valuable so then just sort of pointing out like how are these communities going to relate to one another And then the people that don't have those resources, somebody who rolls in, who can take charge, may not be a good leader, may not even be a good person. They're going to flock to that person because, okay, he's got it. I don't have to worry about it Mm -hmm. out of my hands. But as they're having this conversation, Glenn is painting and Stu just kind of notices and the way he notices Ah, it is hilarious because he's like, he made the unfortunate decision to incorporate the dog into the painting because <laughs> he cannot paint to save his life. <laughs> yes. But he paints with the knowledge that he is painting the best landscapes in the country right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is such a great little character bit for, for all three of them. Like, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> they're having this very weighty discussion that is basically King being like, here's my thesis paper for this book, <laughs> uh, which is still fascinating and yeah. really cool. And like, I could honestly, if I were there, probably listen to Glenn talk all Forever. day. Uh, but yeah, just that little character moment. I did laugh out loud at that as well. Where it's like, oh, he shouldn't have done that. That dog's not going to hold still. And then before we move on to arguably the next best, most awesome chapter, Glenn also makes a point about um, who's surviving, you know, animals and people alike. And they have a conversation that I and I'm sure anyone reading this could not help but think about Franny and her baby the whole time. Yeah. Because they're talking, you know, is mothers who are immune, are their babies immune? Do they die in utero or are they stillborn like you know some in some cases a mother can pass on that immunity and i just thought i know what happens because i've read this before but and when i was read it the first time as a kid so i probably didn't think this deeply but if i didn't know any better i'd be like oh my god is franny gonna go through all of this and then she gives birth to a dead baby so moving on to chapter 38 <laughs> <laughs> on that light-hearted note <laughs> okay i know you guys are really into this chapter go wild this chapter is about the second epi- epidemic 
to strike the the world because the super flu has killed off everyone that it could. So now this is a chapter about the I refer to it as the Darwin Awards for the rest of the world because it is people who are in a position that maybe can't take care of themselves or do not take care of themselves the right way. And there's no one there to save them. The book calls it the second epidemic and points out that it is what Glenn Bateman would call the good old hospital or the good old emergency room blues, (laughs) which is a just super King phrase that I love. So through this, we, we jump to several different characters and we find out how these people who are dead now, by either a certain circumstance or their own doing. Uh, ben, what's your favorite? What's your favorite one? Oh, there are there are so many. Is it the refrigerator mother? Judy Horton. That is my, that is my favorite one. <laughs> really? Yes. Because what a bitch. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I can't pick. I just love the style. This is this is the sequel to my one of my favorite chapters from last episode where it was just the vignettes of mm-hmm. the flu progressing. This is vignettes of all across the country, the unfortunate few. Um it, it might be the little kid because of how goddamn tragic the, it and is. And it's the very first it's one the they talk very about. First oh, one. Got it. It's a little kid somewhere in the country. He's five years old. Yep. And he's alone. He watched his family die one by one and then dies when he falls down a well and just that's it. He falls down a well, breaks both of his legs and dies 20 hours later. It's horrible. Horrifying. That's what this. It's a really weird way to say how much I love this. (laughs) But it's so it's so dark and it's so like scary because you, you don't. I hadn't thought of this up to this point where it, it illustrates all these people have survived, but they are not safe. No. Yeah. Anything could happen at any time. Something, even a minor thing that they they say uh, a guy could have tonsillitis and be dying and, and just die because yep. there are no doctors. It's fascinating. So I, I I'll touch more on mine. Like yeah. I talked about Judy Horton. She, got knocked up by a guy she slept with who was in college. Her parents made them get married, so she resents him. She resents her baby, and she hates her life, and she's real bitter about it. Then when her child dies, she's like, huh, good. And when her husband dies, she's like, ha, great. But she doesn't know what to do with him, so she takes him to this, like, freezer in the basement of their apartment complex and then proceeds to visit them every day and just look at them. And one day she forgets to put the stopper in and the freezer door closes. And that's the moment she realizes there is no handle on the inside. So she will die with her husband and baby. Very fitting ending. For yeah. it's, it's like a, it's like a. An episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? <laughs> yeah, I was trying to think of what it was. But that's, yeah, that's what it is. Uh, it's more like um, Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, Tales from the Crypt. Because yeah. it's way darker. <laughs> So there are two more chapters that I think we should just talk about together. It's with Nick. Um, He's fighting this infection. He's dreaming of Mother Abigail, and he decides that he needs to leave this town. He gets on his bike. He heads out, and he meets this guy, Tom Cullen. And I I love this chapter because I love Tom. Tom is a cool, awesome dude. Let's talk about our friend Tom Cullen. I don't know how to feel about Tom Cullen. I love him. He is a great character. He's one of the most memorable characters in the entire book. If you talk about the stand with someone, someone is bound to say M-O-O-N. Spells I love Tom Cullen. Spells I love Tom <laughs> Cullen. But that's also kind of the problem yeah. is he's a cartoon character. Yeah. I. So Tom Cullen is what we call differently abled. Yes. Um, he does not, his brain does not work. <laughs> That's not what the book calls no, him. No, the book calls him retarded. It's not a word we continue to use. But it's a diff- It's 2019. He's differently abled. And he's, but he can, like, it's so interesting because he has these moments where he's making these connections. But outwardly, he just, like, shuts down. And people don't realize, like, yeah, his he's working to make these connections and piece things together and get mm-hmm. it. 
And Nick has, you know, his first meeting with him, he's like, you know, I'm just passing through here. And he thinks that he's going to leave this guy behind until he realizes how kind of helpless and childlike Tom is and that they need to stick together. Well, the first thing they point out is when Nick writes him a message, he finds out that Tom can't read. And I laughed out loud at the thought of like, this is before they get into like, like about Tom. But it's like he hands him the thing and he's like, oh, I can't read. Like that, <laughs> that is, is perfect. That is a great like setup yeah. for this. It's just story wise, mm-hmm. the fascination of someone who can't the two people alone in a world and they cannot communicate in pretty much any way. But those two people are going to be the strongest two people because of all the mm-hmm. little barriers that they have to overcome. It's going to be awesome. And their relationship is just so sweet. It's and so and endearing. So instantly, Nick instantly cares for him mm-hmm. and it is just fantastic i love my favorite moment the moment i knew i was going to love tom was when we get that first glimpse of how he shuts down and he's making the connections in his head when he finally pieces together that nick is death and you you <laughs> yes. see that internal like this long road that it goes and he is so excited that he knows <laughs> and i was like I love this. Well, and Nick the is so line, excited. The yeah. line Nick says, he, Nick like smiles to himself and he's like, man, I have i don't remember the last time so, my disability brought someone so much to <laughs> And that's such a great little moment of like, Nick's just like, good for him. And he falls, they fall, well, Nick falls asleep outside while Tom is talking <laughs> and just telling him about his life. He's catching snippets of it. And he wakes up and he's really hot. Tom had covered him, <laughs> put a blanket so, on him. I love it so Three much. Three blankets. Two Three, blankets oh, and yeah. a quilt. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. Despite it were, being the middle of the day in the summer. Yeah. It, I I have some uh it hasn't aged super well, but yeah, Tom Cullen is such an endearing character, and his relationship with Nick is so so sweet and caring that it's ultimately like it, it's really nice and uh you really, really just want both of them to pull through. And they go on a bit of a, a bit of an adventure before we leave them. We'll pick back up with them in our next episode. But um, just sort of to mention, they a tornado almost wipes them out. Would have wiped Nick out if Tom hadn't been there because mm-hmm. Nick, you know, can't hear it or see it. It was behind them, so they take shelter in a in a barn. A barn. A barn. And Man in Black, in some form, is in that barn with them. And it's just a spooky, cool moment. It's Nick saying, like, he could feel the presence. And then when the storm passes, Tom Cullen says, there was someone in there. He came out of the tornado. Yep. And then, um, just real briefly, because I don't think we need to talk about her very much. They meet another tornado in the form form of a A young girl girl named Julie Lowry. (laughs) Yes, who is crazy. Of course, Nick bangs her. And then he's like, oh, that was a bad idea. <laughs> See ya. And well, she has it coming, though. I, I shouldn't. Yeah, she she's very mean. She's mean to Tom. And, yeah. And so he drives her away, but not before she shoots at them and like scatters all their stuff, slashes their tires. So they take off and they hook up with uh, Ralph Bretner. And we're going to get more of this group together later. This is a really short piece, but um, I'll just mention it because it brings together some of our main characters. It, this is the first. Yeah. The first meeting, if you don't count, uh, RF and Lloyd. Stu, Harold, and Franny connect. Um, and of course, Harold is very intimidated or insecure about Mm -hmm. Stu immediately. And Stu has this very frank conversation with him. Like you love her, obviously. Are you sleeping with her? And I'm not here to put my hand in your cookie jar, which is not great. (laughs) We're better together than separate. Mm -hmm. And he gives in. And so they take off together. And of course, at the end of that chapter, which is also the end of book one, Stu realizes, yeah, I do want her. (laughs) Yeah. Carol does not stand a chance. No, <laughs> not a, not in the least. So we're going to finish things out with Larry and Rita and two more characters. And this is when my feelings about Larry started to change. Yes. Larry and Rita are now in the country. They're in Vermont, I believe, at this point. And Larry gets up and it's the 4th of July. He's standing outside naked singing Oh Say Can You See. <laughs> 
refers to his penis as old Sparky, but we don't have to dwell yep, on that. Let's move on. But he's like, this is, I feel great. This is what the, the world is now. I'm going to go inside and have sex with my lady. And he goes in and the tent smells weird. And he like touches her and she doesn't move. And he rolls her over and she has green vomit and she is holding her bottle of pills and she has taken her own life in the night. Interesting. Did she? Because it doesn't really it doesn't say specifically Mm -hmm. whether she accidentally overdosed or she intentionally overdosed. I 100 percent think she intentionally overdosed. Really? Yeah. I assumed it was an accident because as uh, it's gone on. She's been kind of on the edge and he's kind of mentioned that she has all these pills and he's kind of worried about it. But that's her deal. It's not his place to say that, say anything about it. Um, yeah, I got definitely got the feeling that it was more of a of an accidental thing. I think I'm kind of in between. Like, I think that it was an accident that she was very careless about mm. not making. I think she was okay if something like that happened. Yeah. She more of a I'm going to take all these, maybe I'll feel better, maybe I won't wake up. Either way, fine. That's that's fair. My Either thought was way. that she was still clutching the bottle and that was like my my thought of like she downed everything mm-hmm. in it and held onto it as she went out. Yeah. That's okay. yeah. Well, either way, it's it's pretty tragic and it it fucks up Larry something terrible. Yeah, he so he leaves her, does not give her a burial or anything. He just gets the F out. I fucking hated that so much. Yeah, that yes. was that she deserved better than that yeah. for sure. Um so he's on his motorcycle and he has a brush with death. He crashes and almost really hurts himself and that's when he realizes Reed is no longer here. If I had hurt myself Mm-hmm. Who knows what could have happened? Like, I wouldn't have anybody here to help me or help me take care of it. And he comes to this sort of like, I think his first growing moment. Like, this is a very first one. His mom dying didn't do it. Um, the thing he went through with Rita before didn't do it. I think this is where he's kind of like, oh. Mm-hmm. There's no one to take from now. Mm-hmm. He's I, alone. This part with the motorcycle is made better. By that chapter earlier of all the accidental yes. deaths. Mm-hmm. Because we see, oh, he comes a hair's breadth from being in that chapter instead. Yeah. In fact, that chapter has a story about a little girl riding her bike and fractures her skull on her bicycle. Mm-hmm. And there's no one to help her. So he ditches his bike in a, a pretty personal <laughs> yeah. way. Yeah, he uh, rams it off a cliff and then stares at it until it <laughs> dies so it doesn't get up and chase him Christine style. <laughs> so Larry is now walking and um he's been walking a while. He's thin, he's dehydrated, he's sunburned and he comes up on this very scenic looking house and there's like a, a pond in front of it and he gets a drink and he takes a nap resting against a tree in the shade and there is a little boy and a woman in the bushes. Let's talk about them. In, in the middle of the day as he's he's passed out exhausted because he's he's has heat stroke he's uh delirious and as he's passed out a little boy in his uh underwear holding a big serrated butcher's knife comes out and just stands over him and a woman says nah not not now come on <laughs> <laughs> it's so creepy i had a question if did they say how old the kid is i isn't he like around 10 I 9 or 10 s- oh they i think they said, said he could be he could, he could be, be 10 or 13 oh, okay. yeah because he's sort of feral kind of like he, yes. we find out he doesn't talk and it's a little bit hard to tell how old he is and he is with a woman his so she calls him joe because mm. she's not his mom she just found him her name is nadine uh and she looks like Sindel from Mortal Kombat. <laughs> Hell yes! <laughs> oh, that's perfect. She's wearing a purple onesie. <laughs> the, a weird black bandit mask. The two things uh, that jumped out at me at this part, the one thing I just wanted to point out that despite that the kid is older, for some reason as I read this, I envision Joe as Gage. 
Oh wow! I, I didn't. I didn't do that. I don't know why. Like it's I for- a kid with a knife. Yeah, yeah it's a kid yeah. with a knife. But I forgot he was older, so in my brain, my, like <laughs> I knew he wasn't like a small, <laughs> small child. But must have been very strange when he started playing a full-grown guitar. Later. <laughs> it was, and then I was like, right, he's he's older than my brain keeps saying. But this is, uh, this might be my favorite moment in this entire section we've read. That when Larry wakes up. Un- like this, all this stuff happened. He had no idea, but when he wakes up, he's like stretching and he's like, "I feel better." And that's the moment he's like, "I could have been riding a bicycle this whole time." <laughs> and I set my book down to laugh out loud because I loved it so much. So then he does ride a bicycle, and following a safe yet close enough to keep tabs on him distance is this woman Nadine and this little boy Joe, because Joe is very attached to Nadine. And the knife. knife. (laughs) And, but she realizes that they need to find someone else. They need to find people. Although we're starting to get the hints that maybe her path might be different. There's something calling to her, Mm -hmm. something that's been calling to her her whole life. We find out that she's been saving herself for this thing that's calling to her. Mm -hmm. That, uh, they refer to her as being pure. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I, and I do love this. So uh, they're following, but they're not like secret agents. They're not super stealthy. Larry at a point realizes somebody's following me. And I found it interesting that he is very at ease about being followed. And at first he's like, well, if they wanted to hurt me, they would have hurt me by now, whatever. And that's why he thinks while well, he's saying he's at ease. But I kind of disagree with that. I think maybe he's at ease because now he's not alone anymore and his mm. whole thing is about not being yeah. alone and i think he realizes too that they might be afraid of him and he could easily be that person afraid of someone but not wanting to be alone mm-hmm. you know there are a few nights where they're following him um, one of the nights nadine wakes up joe is gone and he has walked to the screened in porch where larry is sleeping holding the knife like making stabbing motions just watching it very very creepy <sighs> Uh, there's an episode of Aqua Teen Hunger Force with these dolls. Yeah! Kill, kill! Yes! But then they never do anything. Yeah. That's the feeling I got yeah. from Kill? Well, until the next day. <laughs> yes. When, Larry, when uh, Larry's looking at the ocean, he's like, I made it. And then he turns around and Joe is charging him and <laughs> swings at him. But Larry, because he's bigger and faster... <laughs> Gives him the old, this is Sparta, kick to the torso and sends him flying across the ground. But he's not trying to hurt him. He's just yeah. like, I can't let this kid stab me. <laughs> it, that is such a funny bit because like when at first he, he says he turns around and he hears this screaming that at first he's like, oh, it must be a gull or something. But then it's this n- almost naked little kid with a knife. And for a split second, it's really creepy. But then he's like, but he's a fucking little kid, so I kicked him and he <laughs> fell down. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, I forgot. Kids are small and stupid. <laughs> Larry starts to get to know Nadine and Joe and soothes the wild beast with the guitar. And we find that Joe might be a genius or autistic. I don't know. He he, he's, a, he's a, a mimic. Yeah, he picks up oh, the guitar. Yours is better. <laughs> <laughs> he's a mimic. And he can just play everything he just heard and he'd never played before so he can't play it well but he picks it up very quickly he hits all the notes and he starts to warm up to larry a little bit and, and he ditches the knife uh larry throws the knife into the ocean <laughs> good move and larry. <laughs> uh, and joe kind of takes the guitar as his new safety blanket although larry does know he could still bludgeon me with a guitar <laughs> <laughs> they decide they agree that they are going to travel together and Larry kind of starts to like Nadine, because of course. Um, and then they meet a woman who we don't get very much of, but Lucy Swan. Mm. And this is when they realize that they are all having the same dreams. That That's later. We okay. skipped over uh, where Nadine, Joe, and Larry come to Algonquit and find a barn with a sign painted on it. They find uh, Franny and Harold's barn and see the sign their first sign that there are other people 
with clear directions. My favorite thing about this is that as they as they piece together everything Harold did, the mental image of Harold that Larry concocts is hilariously wrong. I, do I feel love so that. bad yeah. about that. But they they do the same thing. They get they get motorcycles. They go. They they meet uh, Lucy and they reach the plague center mm-hmm. that now has a new set of directions. And those directions are to Nebraska. Uh, a little place that Nick and Tom are already heading to. Yeah. A place that they've all been dreaming in a field of corn with a uh, little old woman who we will meet uh, right off the bat next episode. Uh, a wonderful uh, woman, oldest woman in the world, Mother mm-hmm. Abigail. That's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us for our next episode, part three, as we will cover chapters 45 through 51. For Benjamin Graham and CM Alexander, I'm Joshua Khan reminding you, no one can tell what goes on in between the person you were and the person you become. No one can chart that blue and lonely section of hell. There are no maps of the change. You just come out the other side or you don't. Hey everyone, Sam Alexander here. We hope you enjoyed The Stand Part 2. A bit of trivia for you. The Stand is kind of related to the short story Night Surf. It's an expanded and more detailed version of the scenario in Night Surf, and you can read a revised version of it in the book Night Shift. But does anyone know where you can read the original version? Tell us on our Facebook or Instagram at Dairy Public Radio or Twitter at Dairy Public. You can also email us dairypublicradio at gmail.com. The first person to post the correct answer gets the admiration, respect, and undying love of all those around you. Please visit our website, constantreaders.org, and check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash dairypublicradio. We are really close to meeting a monthly goal that means we'd be recording extra stuff for you to listen to. Read our posts about it to learn more. That's all for now. Goodbye, listeners.